there's no carbon platform. I have done the math on this, Levi. I have done the math so many times it hurts my brain to think about it. There's no carbon platform right now that's going to pay you as well as, an, as a soil health initiative equip contract with the NRCS. No way. Welcome to the Levi Lau podcast. You can find it at your go-to podcast network. My plan is to develop a series speaking to thought leaders. For that, you can find more of these podcasts at patreon.com. Today, I'm here with Ruth McCabe, a conservation agronomist for Heartland Cooperative. One of Ruth's roles is to assist members with agronomic questions. This has led to a desire to understand the carbon markets. Good morning, Ruth. Good morning. How are you today? I am. I'm doing great. It's the Good. day before Thanksgiving and looking forward to eating some turkey tomorrow. Yeah, and I hear you're going to be pheasant hunting this afternoon. Is that right? I sure am. <laughs> and that's a good way to spend the afternoon. And it's a beautiful day outside today for being late November. Well, today oh, yeah. um, I want to dive into the carbon markets with you because you and I started this conversation about a year ago when we were talking about some conservation practices. And that first conversation, if you recall, was about roller crimping. Roller crimping is a practice where farmers grow rye and then in the springtime come in and lay it down with an implement called a roller crimper and it leaves the, the rye out there in the field. It's a conservation practice that involves um, using less herbicides, sequestering maximum amount of carbon from the cover crop and then growing the crop into that. And Ruth, that was our original conversation and it led to um, a rabbit hole about carbon markets. And since that time, um, there have been many develops in the industry. And so today, I would like to ask you some more questions about that. Absolutely. Um, yep, it has indeed, you know, the carbon markets really are very much so like a rabbit hole. And you can understand surface information about carbon markets, and then you can dive a lot deeper, and I call it getting into the weeds. Um, but it really is like a rabbit hole, so it'll be fun chatting about that today. And, and like you said, I, I really hope that we can provide some basic surface-level information that'll guide listeners to make more informed decisions about where they want to go. Mm -hmm. Well, Ruth, I'm a farmer that has 250 acres of row crop corn and soybeans. And I've, I've been growing rye for eight or nine years as a cover crop. Um, this is on land that has been no-tilled for 30 years uh, because my father before me um, was no-tilling as I was growing up as a kid. So I'm really curious about how these markets work for someone like myself and um, if I can fit in someplace because it's really exciting to think about um, supplementing my farm income by doing something that's going to help society and help the climate mitigate the CO2. Could you talk just a moment about um, the climate crisis and why it is that this carbon market has been this growing interest among farmers? Absolutely, yeah. A, a big like 30,000 foot answer you know to your question there is in general as after the industrial revolution right humans began using up fossil fuels and using them in large quantities and it has helped propel our global population it has helped propel advancements in technology in movement and trade and knowledge and it's been great for the human species as a whole in terms of, of building um, our species and propelling us forward. Um, the downside is we're burning through a lot of these fossil fuels at a rate that is much shorter than the amount of time that it took those fossil fuels to be created to begin with, right? We're, we're comparing geologic time to three or 400 years. And that, that burning through those fuels has, has released all of these, these carbon-based gases, right? Carbon compounds and nitrogen compounds and whatnot that are you know, going up into the atmosphere and through a lot of scientific processes that we're definitely not going to get into today are causing overall global temperatures to increase ever so slightly, right? And 
that half a degree of increase of temperature Celsius or that one degree of increased temperature Celsius seems like it would be really small, but is actually having significant impact on our weather climate patterns. It's having significant impact on flooding, you know, instances, severe rainstorms, severe heat, drought. Um, we're just seeing crazier weather patterns around the globe, warmer climate in countries and in regions where it should be much colder and crazier storms um, to bring it home here, for instance, in the Midwest. We're always used to having crazy storms in the Midwest, but now our storms are even crazier than they used to be, setting all mm -hmm. these records for heat, you know, for floods. Um, and not all of that, not all of that is due to things like greenhouse gases building in the atmosphere and, and causing global temperatures to increase, but some of it is due to that. And we are looking at that data science or climate scientists have looked at that and have basically unanimously said, yeah, the, the increase in carbon in the atmosphere is driving some of those crazy climatic events. So mm -hmm. we have to, as a species, we want to, we want to respond, right? We, as a species, yeah. we want to respond to that. So, oh. uh, well, well, Ruth, I have um, a former career as a high school science teacher. And so the science of climate is interesting to me, but I don't want to deny the fact that um, it is still debated out there. Like, is there change happening because of our practices as humans, or is it not? And what I think is interesting about farmers being able to look at the future of carbon markets is that... Um, they don't have to have answers to that debate. You know, these markets are developing in a way that farmers can take advantage of and we can help the climate. And it doesn't have to be that you necessarily believe we caused it or didn't cause it. It's just that um, yeah. the data says what it says. And we do know that we can alter our practices, which we'll get into in a little bit, but certain practices are better for the climate than others. Um, and when we look at the um, carbon dioxide in as a greenhouse gas, we are above 400 parts per million now, which is the highest on recorded record. And what do they say? It, by like 2050, it's supposed to double again at this rate and be above 800 parts per million. Um, I don't want to hug too much of this kind of data today, but I do think it's an interesting, um, an interesting thing to kind of look at and say, well, what can we do as farmers to be a part of the solution? Yeah, and you know, I'll add to that. So I love that approach. That is my approach when I work with farmers who want to learn about carbon markets specifically, but also when they just want to learn about conservation practices. I very strongly am, am a fan of straying away from the conversations that go down the blame, the blame game or the blame road. I don't think that's a, I don't think that's a helpful conversation to have in general. I don't think it's useful pointing fingers and blaming because then I think nothing gets done. And I think that farmers and land managers right now have, or anybody who manages land in some capacity has the ability to change what they're doing in a way to benefit the environment immediately. Um, but then also um, change their technology and change their practices in a way that they can get paid to do that. And so I'm a big fan of when we're talking about conservation or carbon, I'm a big fan of focusing on the here and now and not necessarily talking about um, who's at fault because, I, you know, again, doesn't solve the problem. And one thing I'll, I'll say to that is at the end of the day, I don't even when I'm talking with farmers about, you know, conservation, I don't even talk much about carbon unless they have specific questions about the programs because I am much more interested in immediate side effects from using conservation practices. So the idea is we started tilling fields 300 years ago, whatever, 200 years ago, and we lost some of the ecosystem services from those fields when we did that. And so the idea now is let's bring some of those ecosystem services back to the agricultural landscape by adopting some practices that can help us filter a little bit more water as it moves off our field, keep our soil on our field, and improve the water holding capacity of our soils. These immediate benefits that can be seen, which also, bonus, happen to sequester carbon. But I don't focus on carbon 
as the end goal. I focus on these ecosystem services. Because I think sometimes mm-hmm. it's like throwing the baby out with the bathwater. You're just focusing on carbon. You're throwing the baby out with the bathwater. There's so much more that you can gain as a farmer in your field by using conservation practices. I'm less interested in carbon sequestration. It, other than that, it is a great side benefit. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And Ruth, I'm glad you mentioned that um, need to not focus only on carbon because we're learning more about systems and regenerative aspects of nature and society is beginning to apply more regenerative principles in all kinds of ways and in farming regenerative is a movement that has picked up steam in recent years but that term regenerative is speaking of Um, systems being interconnected and carbon isn't just out there functioning on its own it's part of um, a a system both physical with other elements and the climate patterns but also biological with the um, the decay and decomposition of um, of of plants and the um, bacteria and and microbiology right these are systems that we want to think of and um, that is important because when we start talking about the recent Growing, Growing Climate Solutions Act passed by the U.S. Congress, they use language in that that demonstrates this is voluntary. It's intended to be voluntary participation by farmers. And with farmers, it carries a lot more weight when they hear that word. Um, and so the programs we're going to be talking about today are all voluntary programs per se um, both some of them are federal programs and some of them are um, entrepreneurial programs that are starting up um, so how about we get into some of that what but before we get into naming any Ruth let's do a bit of a disclaimer so um, I'm a farmer I'm putting I'm putting together this podcast. I'm excited to talk about it, but I am not a part of any particular um, contract with any of these companies. And um, I'll give you an opportunity to speak for a moment about your association, if any, with what we're going to talk about today. Yeah. So, same thing. I'm I'm an agronomist, not a farmer, but I am an agronomist. I work for an ag retailer. You know, I work for a cooperative and we sell inputs, we sell products. Um, I don't sell anything, but I provide consultation and advice to our grower members about adopting conservation practices. Um, Heartland does not represent any carbon platform. We don't sell carbon platforms right now. We don't um, actively sign people up for any carbon platform. We don't have a relationship um, with like a, a hard carbon platform. We do work with TrueTerra, which has a carbon arm called True Carbon, um, although I think they are rebranding themselves just as TrueTerra across the board. But we don't actually sign people up for their carbon program. Um, so we, the information that I'm going to provide is that while I'm a conservation agronomist and my farmers, I've, had, I've lost count hundreds probably now of these conversations where I've coached growers through the different platforms, what they can expect when they're signing up, what the payments actually look like, how the companies are collecting data. So I've just done a deep dive into this topic. I've met with carbon company representatives. I have, I have given other presentations on carbon companies. I am not a representative of them. So I might say something that's out of date. This is an industry that changes very quickly. So I might say something that is now out of date and I, I might have learned it two months ago and already it's no longer true because a lot of these companies have changed their policies in the space of one year. Some of these companies have changed their policies three or four times because they're responding to market demands. So I will mm-hmm. just say what I know is, is what I've learned, but something could change. Um, so, and, and, and since I don't sell any of these, these programs, I'm, I have an objective viewpoint. I like to think I'm, I'm objective, but um Again, I don't work for any of these people, so if I say something incorrect, apologies in advance. Apologies in advance. Mm-hmm. All right, thank you, Ruth. Now, if I were just to name some of these companies that are out there um, offering contracts and services, I'll just go down this short list. ESMC, um, Soil and Water Outcomes Fund, Indigo, Nori, and then there's a whole list of input suppliers out there. Um, it's 
five or six, but then there's also CIBO, which is a, um, a different platform. How do we get our head around all these options as farmers? Yeah, that's a great question. There's a few different ways to describe. I call them carbon companies or carbon platforms. Um, there's a few different ways to, to split them up. I have a way that I split them up, which is like this. I have three categories when I'm talking about a carbon company or a carbon platform. One is there are carbon companies who they're a marketplace platform. You go to them, they work with you, they figure out based on your management practices in your field, how much estimated carbon you're storing, and then they give you a number and you can turn around on their plat on their marketplace, just like eBay or something like that. And you can sell your credits to whoever you want to sell your credits to. So that's a market-based, you know, a marketplace platform. Then there are company-sponsored platforms. So a carbon company works with you directly, the farmer, looks at your management practices, figures out how much carbon you're storing, maybe ecosystem services that you're providing based on your practices. And then they say, all right, here's this number that you've stored. Here's how much carbon, tons of carbon you've stored. We're going to buy these from you, and then we are going to turn around and sell these to these companies over here. And you mm -hmm. don't have a say in who we sell your, we don't, you don't have a say in who we sell your carbon to. Okay. It feels like and you're describing, there's third. are you describing companies like Indigo oh. and Nori? In that category? So, so like a market, yeah, I'll give an example. And then there, there is one more category, but um, a market-based platform would be something like Ecosystem Services Consortium, the ESMC. Uh, Nori is a market-based platform. You go to Nori, they have a marketplace that you go to to sell your credits after your credits have been verified. Whereas a company sponsored, like a company sponsored platform is like Truterra or Indigo. They help you figure out how much carbon you've sequestered, but then they're going to sell it. You don't get to sell it. And then there's that third category, and thanks for asking for the clarification. Then there's that third category where it's a company program where a company is coming to you buying your credits from you and then using your credits to directly offset their own emissions. So an example of that is, for instance, Summit, Summit Carbon Solutions. They are a group of energy companies who you will work directly with. They'll figure out how much carbon you've sequestered and then they buy that directly from you for themselves. Or Bayer, Bayer has a program where basically Bayer says, okay, you're gonna adopt these practices. We're gonna pay you for doing that. We're gonna calculate how much carbon you've sequestered and then we're gonna use it to offset our own emissions. So those are the mm -hmm. three categories, right? Um, marketplaces, mm -hmm. middlemen companies that sell your credits to other people and then direct to company platforms. So that's how I split them up when I'm describing them to farmers. There are other ways to split up companies um, I want to give it lip service, and I think you should you should probably put a link um, link to it maybe in the online description for this podcast. But there is an excellent publication from Iowa State um, Extension, um, ISU Extension put out. It's a publication called How to Grow and Sell Carbon Credits in U.S. Agriculture. And if you Google that, How to Grow and Sell Carbon Credits in U.S. Agriculture, if you Google that, you will find this PDF. It's free from Iowa State. It's an excellent introduction to what are the carbon markets, what do they do, how do I participate in them, and how do I compare the different companies. And they split up companies a little differently. I'm not going to get into it to save us some time, but um, they split up companies based on what the company does. So there are some companies that are data platforms. Um, that's what that company specializes in. There are some companies that are large conglomerate companies. Um, and then there are some companies that are input suppliers, basically. So they split it up a little differently um, than, than I do. But it's a great publication. I encourage your listeners to find it. Thank you. Well, when we look at this Iowa State publication, which people can go to, I noticed that there's some language in it which seems to come straight out of the Kyoto Protocol reports and these are these Kyoto yeah. Protocol reports began um, 
I believe 20 years ago, and they put out there information about that countries can use to figure out how they're going to address the climate crisis. And those Kyoto Protocols use some words that seem to go right into this, um, this Iowa State publication. I'll just name a couple. Things like additionality um, or insets. These are terms that are um, new terms to farmers. Um, the thing is, is I feel like some of these concepts were created without farmers really in mind. The, these terms apply best to um, industries that are trying to mitigate their carbon footprint, and f such as permanence. I, again, maybe we should define some of these things, Ruth, now just real generally, because farmers are going to come across these terms. and though it doesn't apply to some of the carbon programs that are are in front of us these terms are gonna be out there and so let's just together visit them briefly what do you think yeah, yeah definitely. well the first one is permanence okay so as a farmer I hear that word permanence and I think and, and I read in the Kyoto Protocol that it means you sequester carbon and it must stay there for 100 years all right automatically we're in a situation that it just doesn't work for farmers. So um, you can't promise that something is going to be there for 100 years when you're talking about sequestering something into your soil. And so that's very confusing to farmers. My understanding is these programs um, that we have just named have figured out ways to talk about and offer the these um, these ecosystem products by um, going not around that 100-year permanence concept, but adapting it for to to work for farmers. Is the, is yep. this yeah, some just? Um, <laughs> yep. So most yeah, most of the carbon companies, most of the carbon platforms um, that I mentioned, and, and we might talk about a few others, but they've got these contract lengths. The longest contract length right now, if you're working directly with a carbon platform, is 20 years. Um, they might pay you for only five to 10 years of that contract, and then you're expected to keep the practice in place for at least another 10 years um, that you've agreed to adopt or the management, you know, that you've agreed to adopt. Um, and so mm -hmm. I don't, none of them pay you, none of them pay you for 20 years. I think that the most you'll be paid by any of the platforms, the longest you'll be paid is up to 10 years. And that is only contingent upon whether or not you've continued to maintain or build carbon, you know, in your soils. So, mm -hmm. um, and we can talk about that later about how they even measure that. But, um, yeah, you know, they're, some... these carbon platforms, it's not based on 100 years. They're, they're basing it on more 5 to 20 year contract lengths. Okay, and it may be different for, you know, the different scenarios, but in general, it's a shorter period of time they're working with. Another term that's out there is additionality. So um, farmers are required to use new practices in order to qualify for many of these programs. And I look over the list of what are considered conservation practices, um, no-till, cover crops, buffer strips. I'm doing all of them already. Where does that leave me? That's a great question. Yeah, I have a smile on my face if your listeners could see me right now. <laughs> but um, additionality is a word you're gonna you're gonna slowly learn to hate. <laughs> so I have a love hate relationship with it, mostly hate, um, because it does cut out of the equation the very growers whose work has informed this industry so so stringently, and it cuts those growers right out of the equation. Because if you have been using no-till, strip-till, if you have been using cover crops, if you have buffer strips, filter strips, um, and you've been doing this for 10, 20, 30 years, there isn't a program right now on the market that's going to pay you for what you've already done. And that's frustrating because it's a market that right out the gate is disincentivizing long-term adoption, right? Because anybody who's been doing these practices for a long time is incentivized instead you know, to just go out and rip up their fields for a few years, and then they can participate in these markets, right? That's the idea. No one's probably going to do that, but the markets are not incentivizing the right people. In a perfect world, in a capitalist, you know, world, that's what we are in America, right? Um, 
we, uh, the early innovators are the ones who should be reaping the benefits. So additionality, to get to your question, what additionality means is, yes, it's a new practice or a new acre. So maybe you're a farmer that's been using these practices for 20 years and you acquire another 160-acre parcel of land or something, and it's never had these practices done on it, then you can take what you already know about those practices, apply it to that new land, and now you can earn some carbon payments on that new land. Or you're a farmer who has never used conservation practices, and you've decided, okay, I'm going to adopt no-till and cover crops, and I'm going to put some buffer strips in, and I'm going to enroll all my acres into this carbon program, and everything's going to be great. Um, I'm an agronomist. And I provide advice to farmers. I'm, I'm a hard, I'm a crop physiologist and an agronomist. And when I learn of farmers who are just jumping on the bandwagon whole hog with all 2,000 acres, and they're going to adopt all these conservation practices at once, Levi, you are a farmer who uses conservation practices, and I'm sure you would probably coach that person and say, whoa, 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 slow down. Conservation practices have some uptake. There is an educational curve to adopting conservation practices, and if you do it all at once, you might not be happy with the outcome. Um, and so additionality is encouraging the exact kind of people who probably should go a little bit slower in adopting conservation because they probably don't have a lot of experience with using conservation farming practices. And it's encouraging them to just jump onto the boat, all of their acres in tow, and, um, you know, jump and figure it out on the way down. And so mm -hmm. it, it's, not, it's not the coolest way to structure a, a platform, right? Um, I don't know as many farmers, you know, or the alternative, like I said, is you have a farmer who's already been using these practices, but they kind of have to go find new ground to adopt these practices on in order to benefit um, from the platforms. So that's, that's, I hope that explains what additionality means. Yeah, it introduces um, a lot of things that make my mind just kind of feel dizzy. You know, like I'm renting uh, the vast majority of the 250 acres that I farm. So if I were to enter into one of these contracts on rented land, um, is that possible? So you can just be renting land? Do I need to do it? Does my um, land, um, the landlord need to be aware? Most of, the carbon, most of the carbon companies are going to require that if you're renting land, you have an affidavit or a signed release from the landowner of some kind that basically says you as the farmer get the rights to the carbon that's being sequestered. If it's not your land, you have to you have to get permission from the landowner to enter yourself into these carbon contracts because the, the the carbon sequestration practice so far, and this is another gray area of the carbon markets right now. The way it's structured, it's tied to the land, not the person. So, you know, let's say you were a farmer and you began renting a new parcel of land, but it's already had no-till done on it, or it's already had cover cropping done on it, you might not be able to enroll that land in a carbon platform, even though you, the farmer, might be new to those practices because that land has already had those practices done on it. So it, the practices are tied to the acre um, in general. That's the way most of these platforms are set up. Uh, so, yeah, if, you, if you're renting land, you have to have permission from the landowner. For most of the companies, you have to have proof at the bare minimum that says, I will have exclusive, you know, rights to the carbon that I'm sequestering in these soils to turn around and, and sell these credits. Mm -hmm. Well, I have some NRCS CSP contracts. So that's Conservation Stewardship Program. And these contracts, similar to what you just said, say, say that um, they have to be new practices. So I was able to um, receive some annual payments from the USDA NRCS because I'm doing new practices. I added some buffer strips. I increased my rotations uh, um, to a three-year instead of a two-year. And I started doing cover cropping on some fields that I wasn't previously. So I'm able to get some CSP money from NRCS. So can I just go and sign up for one of these carbon programs also? Yeah, that's a, that's a fantastic question as well, and I get that a lot from farmers. Some of the carbon companies will allow you to stack. It's called stacking. So they will allow you to stack whatever payments they give you with whatever payments you're going to be getting from a state or a federal program. What I tell people, the, the general rule of thumb is public and private sources of funding for whatever you're adopting play very nicely together. 
private and private sources of funding do not play nicely together and neither do public and public sources of funding. So in general, you can stack a public source of funding, i.e. taxpayer-funded source of funding, with a private source of funding. But you cannot stack public and public and you cannot stack private and private. Now, there is a giant asterisk attached to that statement. And the reason I say that is because some of the carbon companies, based on how they are calculating your carbon credits, your offset credits, as well as your insets, and I know we're going to talk about that, the ecosystem services you're providing, your insets, those kinds of things, based on how they're calculating those things, you cannot stack with a state or a federal program for funding, and some of them you can. So what I mean by that is, I'll use an example. You've enrolled in CRP. Let's say this is you're a farmer, and this is your first year. You're going to enroll in CRP, and you're going to adopt, you're going to adopt cover crops, and you're going to diversify your rotation, and you're going to use a nitrogen um, inhibitor, nitrification inhibitor. You're going to use some kind of product that prevents your fields from losing as much nitrogen. Let's say those are the three new practices you're going to adopt, and you're going to enroll in the conservation stewardship program with the NRCS, and this is your first year. You might turn then to an organization like Truterra, um, and you might also then enroll in Truterra's True Carbon platform because they will allow you, at least right now, uh, to take advantage of state and federal programs at the same time as they'll pay you for your practices. Um, I think as I look at the list, I want to say, I'm just looking at my list right now, I want to say Indigo will allow you to enroll in state or federal programs, and I think I think Bayer will allow you to roll in state federal programs, um, and I think even ESMC to a certain degree lets you do it. So there are these platforms that will let you do CSP as well as theirs at the same time. Then there are platforms that do not. So there's, I think there's granular. Nope, you don't get to, I think that they don't let you, oh, not granular, gradable, gradable. Sorry, oh, those words are so similar. Gradable, I think, okay. says nope, you, you can't. And then soil and water outcomes fund. That's another one. Soil and Water Outcomes Fund, nope, you can't use state and federal programming at the same time as you work with them. All right. Well, to keep this from getting lost, let's bring the word inset into this conversation briefly, and maybe it'll be all we say about insets. Yeah. But um, my understanding of an inset is a carbon, or a company who is offering a service instead of offering a a payment or a credit says, well, hey, we'll just give you a discount on your chemical or your seed or whatever product. And then we get to kind of count the the mitigation that is happening on your farm. And it's sort of under the table in a way um, instead of the farmer getting a direct payment for the practice. That's such a great, okay, so that's, that is one way, one view, or one lens through which you can look at what an inset is. I'm going to take a step back and say, you'll hear the phrase carbon offsets, and you'll hear the phrase carbon insets. Carbon insets are kind of fuzzy. Carbon offsets are pretty clear cut. You can also hear this, refer and I encourage your listeners to Google this. Google it. You're going to hear them sometimes referred to as scope one, scope two, and scope three emissions. You need to Google those. Google those terms and learn what they mean because they're very closely related to carbon offsets and carbon insets, okay? So a scope one emission is a, is a straightforward, it's carbon offset. That is a carbon credit. That is carbon that has been sequestered in some way. A company comes along like, we'll say General Mills. General Mills comes along and says, I am buying your carbon offset. I am buying your scope one emission. I am buying the carbon you have just sequestered in your soil. That is now my carbon credit. And I'm going to use that carbon credit to offset my emissions that I emit from my factory smokestacks. And you, the person who sequestered that carbon in your soil, you don't get to claim that in the future if ever you want to offset your own carbon emissions. That's a carbon offset. That's a scope one emission. Now, Okay. Scope two, that's a little fuzzy. Scope two is fuzzy. That's something like General Mills purchases electricity to run its power plants. And if it's purchasing electricity that is somehow 
sort of sustainably generated, they can claim that electricity as more sustainable electricity, and that's a scope to um, emission, so to speak. That's fuzzy. I don't understand that as well as I should, so I'll, I'll just put a disclaimer there. Then there's scope three. That I understand pretty well. That's what you could call insets, okay, carbon insets. Scope three emissions are fuzzy. They are they can be sold in more than one place. That's what's crazy about scope three emissions. They can be sold in more than one place. If a farmer or a grower or somebody who's generating carbon three, or, or sorry, scope three insets or mm -hmm. um, carbon insets, more than one company can claim those. And those are, for instance, let's say you're a farmer, you, Levi, you use cover crops, you use no-till, you sell your soybeans to ADM, okay? You sell your soybeans to ADM. ADM can look at your soybeans and say, ah, they're a part of our supply chain. Those soybeans are in our supply chain. That farmer's in our supply chain, and he uses no-till, and he uses cover crops. We're going to claim that the beans we're buying from him are sustainable beans, and we can claim that because he's using these sustainability practices. But let's say ADM turns around and sells those soybeans to Heartland, and we buy those soybeans and we turn them into pork feed because we have a feed mill and we make pork, we make pork feed, right? We could say, ah, our pork feed is sustainable because Levi Lyle, from whom we purchased our beans, even though it's through ADM, he uses, he uses no-till and he uses cover crops, so our beans are sustainable. So more than one company can claim those insects. Now, the interesting thing comes in here where if something is sold as an offset, so if Levi, you turned around, you adopted new practices, you, you know, sold your carbon credits on those acres that you put in cover crop and no-till on because it's brand new for you, pretending, um, then whoever bought those carbon credits automatically gets your carbon insets and nobody else can touch those insets. That's where it gets hairy. That's where there's a lot of gray area and no, the carbon market world has not figured out who owns what yet. Um, so that's where it can get kind of hairy. If, if you're somebody who's only dealing in carbon insets, multiple companies can claim your carbon insets. But if you're selling your carbon credits, then you cannot sell an inset after you've sold a carbon offset, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, I cannot resist the question. I feel like I should let go. But I have to ask, do insets undermine our potential for an offset market? That's a great question. <laughs> um, yeah, in some ways, and I would argue that offsets could could undermine insets. I I don't have an opinion one way or the other right now, and because I'm not an expert, expert, expert in this field, I'm sure if somebody else sat at the table, they might argue no. They might say it only enhances it, it creates competition. Um, it's going to ultimately help iron out what the best market platform is for selling these ecosystem services, for selling conservation practices. Maybe we'll discover five, ten years from now, that dealing in carbon insets makes way more sense than dealing in carbon offsets. Or maybe we'll discover it's the opposite and that the two can't coexist. Maybe we'll discover that insets more closely align themselves with ecosystem services, which is what I was saying earlier, right? I'm, I'm way more concerned about the ecosystem services that we get from a landscape than I am about how much carbon you're sequestering. I care a lot more about how clean the water is as it moves off your field, and I care a lot more about how much soil you're keeping in the field and I care a lot more about the reduced uh, emissions from your tractor and other vehicles, you know, that you're achieving by using these practices. So maybe we'll discover insects more, more closely aligned with the value of conservation practices. Or maybe we'll discover that they're too messy and we should really just deal in something concrete like carbon offsets. So that probably, that was a non-answer to your question, I think. But um, that's kind of how it's being dealt with right now. Yeah, thanks for addressing it in that way. You know, to sum up uh, all, the, all that you said about insets and offsets and the three scopes, sometimes these programs are spoken of as first generation carbon market programs. And so I like that because it helps us understand that this is a moving target and where we are today is changing frequently and what what it will look like 10 years from now is unknown but it will look different and which of these programs rise to the surface is gonna be a matter of competition and that's the nature of our economy and you know as americans we we believe in that that system and so um that's encouraging and i'm glad for one that 
these private programs are out there battling it out, being on the forefront, because it needs to happen in the private industry, because that's where um, leadership, I think, takes form. And I, I like that, that we've got these companies out there willing to say, hey, we've got an idea for how to um, make these ecosystem services serve farmers. And so um, <laughs> we've kind of covered some of those things. Um, Ruth, when we talk about, you know, I, I, I almost want to stop myself, but we just should say something about cap and trade also. Um, you know, these, this is language that digs us in a hole, right, when we start talking about all these terms. But these are, these are things right out of the climate treaties that have to do with much more than agriculture. They have to do with, um, with forestry, agriculture. They have to do with um, engineered technologies to improve um, climate change. So where does cap and trade come into these conversations? when it comes to what farmers are doing, what about the ability to measure it? So are these companies generally asking farmers to go out and pay to measure increases in their, their carbon or um, proving or validating the practices that they're doing? Yep, so what, carbon, so what the carbon platforms are doing, it's different for every carbon company, it's different for every carbon platform. Across the board, in general, if you're a farmer and you're working with a carbon platform, no matter what they are, whether they are a marketplace platform, whether they are a data platform, you know, whatever, most of them will not ask the farmer to pay for the soil testing that gets done, for the verification costs. Most of them will assume that cost or they will keep some of your carbon credits to pay for that cost with them. So there's for most of these platforms, there is not an upfront dollar amount. There are a couple of caveats. Um, I think that, I think it's Bayer where you have to have the climate field view um, apps. You need to have climate field view account and you need to have the machinery in your tractor. And that is not cheap um, to have that stuff installed and they're not going to give it to you. So if you want to participate in Bayer's program, you need to have climate field view. You need to have that capability. You need to have that machinery in your tractor. And then I think for Gradable um, and SIBO, I think they both require a subscription to their data platform um, in order for you to participate in their carbon um, measuring, you know, platform. So they, you know, and I don't know how much those subscriptions cost, but they're, they're not cheap. So those are the exceptions to that rule about some upfront costs. But in terms of your question specifically, which was, hey, do farmers have to pay for the soil testing and the, and the carbon credit verification and all of that? No, the companies in general will assume those costs either outright or they will just hold back some of your carbon credits to pay for those costs, but you're not mm -hmm. in general going to be paying for it up front. Okay. Well, Ruth, when we get into what these companies may ask of farmers um, coughing up fees and testing for validation and measurement, it gets me thinking, well, gosh, maybe I should just call, maybe I should just skip all these middle people, call Cal the California Climate Action Reserve, which um, is who some of these entities are working with to sell our carbon on, or our credits on the market. And just just do it do it myself get some farmers together and just go do it and and skip all this um all these other companies what do you think like are there people out there brainstorming that you know i and i'm not i think i think doing as much as you can yourself as the farmer is going to allow you to retain the most monetary benefit the practices that you would be adopting. So, you know, if, if you and a group of farmers could get together, work directly with um, the um, CAR, or California Action, it's CAR, right? California Action Reserve. I think that's what it is. Yeah, yeah. yeah CAR, okay. Uh, you know, work directly with them. You know, if, if, if enough people could get together to do that, they would probably retain more of those, of the dollar value or the dollar figures for selling their carbon credits long term. The problem with that is 
there is a ton of legwork involved in doing that. Uh, measuring and estimating carbon sequestered in the soil requires pretty advanced modeling and pretty advanced data analysis. I can't do it, and I've heck, I've got advanced statistics. <laughs> got a graduate degree, and you know, in this stuff, and I certainly couldn't do it. Um, and it requires a significant amount of time. And so the reason why most farmers work with the carbon market platforms directly is because these platforms are going to be that middleman for you. They're going to manage the verification behind the scenes. They're going to manage the modeling behind the scenes to estimate how much carbon you're sequestering. They will manage and figure out how to get soil testing done and everything else. So you don't have to do that legwork. But of course, like you just said, and like I am saying, you're going to pay for that in some way. Either you're going to lose some carbon credits or you're just not going to get paid as much for your carbon credits mm -hmm. as you would if you just did the work yourself. So um, my only advice here, this might be going off the rails a little bit, but I'll just put this out there. Um, if you have to work with a middleman, working directly with a carbon platform is probably the best way to do it. It's one middleman between you and whoever is purchasing your carbon credits. I wouldn't recommend going. There are some companies that have popped up where and I don't know their names, so I couldn't even say who it is, but there are consultants and consultation companies that are popping up where they are saying, hey, we'll do the legwork of sorting through all the carbon platforms for you, and we'll figure out which carbon platform is best for you, and for a 10% flat fee off the top, we'll get you enrolled and start getting you carbon payments. And it's like, now you're working with two middlemen. Now you're, you're working with a carbon platform that's selling your credits to another company maybe, but then you're also working with a middleman that's taking some of your money on top of it. And ultimately, you're going to have to do the same amount of data, you know, data management and data collection in order to, to supply both of those middlemen. And you're still going to have to do the work of tracking what you're doing on each field for both of those middlemen. So I guess my advice from an agronomic, you know, consulting perspective is if you're going to work with a middleman, just work with one. Just work straight with a platform. I, I, I'm probably making some people out there angry by saying that. But. I don't think there's a need to work with two middlemen. <laughs> yeah, well, um, thanks for your insight. And, um, you know, if people do disagree, then, you know, this is what it's all about. You know, let's create the conversation and, um, I, you know, their voices need to be heard out there. And so in response to me putting this out there, I hope it creates a dialogue, which then I can... Um, put there right below the feed that I post this podcast on and we can hear people's views and they can tell us how we were wrong about all these things <laughs> or hopefully cheer us on that we're getting most of it right. Well, um, why is it that farmers need to be careful as they sign a contract to work with these platform companies? What is the danger that we need to look out for? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. Again, there are a few things I encourage people to look out for. The number one thing is, as I was saying earlier, stacking. I was talking about stacking, public and public, private and public, private and private. No one's going to verify that for you. You, as the landowner and the farmer, you, as the person who is signing these contracts, you have to make sure that everybody plays nicely together. Cause the government's not going to make sure they're not going to double check for you. They might say they will, but they're not going to have the time to double check everybody. And the private platforms don't always double check for you either. So you ultimately are responsible for knowing who's buying what from your practices and if they can both buy what you're selling. If you accidentally sell your carbon credits in two places, that's going to land you in hot water. So you have to make sure you know what you're selling and you have to make sure you understand who you're selling it to and you know what they're buying from you. So that's the first thing to look out for. The other mm -hmm. thing to look out for is this is a little this is a little crass, but I think it's a great analogy for the carbon markets. Is you're you're basically selling your carbon sequestration virginity, and I know that that's crass, but it's the best way to to describe it. Once you've sold it, it's gone, and you can't go back in time and sell it again. So once you marketed your carbon sequestration practices, your conservation practices to a company, another company isn't going to work with you because you've already sold that additionality. That's where that word additionality comes into play. So 
and I, I don't want to tell people to wait to adopt conservation practices. I'm a conservationist. I want everybody to adopt conservation practices now, yesterday. But on the flip side, I want to say to somebody who's in a unique position where maybe they're contemplating adopting conservation, they're in that place where they're going to take the plunge, I might encourage them to do it slowly so that they can enroll in more than one program over time so that as the programs and as the markets develop, they can take better advantage of future markets that might pay them more. And I don't want to say adopt conservation slowly. Unfortunately, the way the incentives are structured right now, it's encouraging slow adoption. And that's what worries me. It's a disincentive, right, from a conservation standpoint. But I would tell people from an agronomic agronomist consultation perspective, I want to help you, the farmer, make the best decisions. I would say, don't do it all at once. Um, mm -hmm. Because these markets are going to change and you need to be careful because once you've sold it, you've sold it. So if you if you sell everything tomorrow for $5 a ton, and that's not $5 an acre, that's $5 a ton, and then two years from now there's a company that comes along and they pay $15 a ton, well, you can't undo your sell. And going forward, no one else is going to work with you. You can't switch companies. This year you might work with one company and then you say, all right, next year I'm going to work with this other company. It doesn't work like that. Once you've locked yourself into working with a carbon company, you're more or less anyway, you're locked in. There are some there's some wiggle room depending on the platform, but in general, you're locked in. So mm -hmm. those are the two things I warn people about is be very careful who you agree to, to get into bed with because now you're done. And the other one is uh, be very careful to know who's buying what from you and that you can sell what you're selling and you're not stacking inappropriately. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, Ruth, what about um, the cost of going out there and implementing some of these practices such as cover crops? You know, I could put $35 an acre out there really easily because I, if I'm going to roller crimp, for example, I'm going to put two bushels per acre of rye. So I'm at $20. I come in with a, a seed drill and a tractor and, and labor. I'm at $35 an acre. None of these programs appear to be canceling out what it would cost me to go out and, and use cover cropping as my practice in that regard. Um, so that, let me finish, is... In contrast to what we've heard from the National Science Foundation, which has studied what farmers need to be able to make on their um, per ton carbon, and they say 60 to $80 per ton is where it needs to be at for this to become viable for farmers. We're not even close to getting there at this time, and it makes me wonder, like, are we on our way there? And this is why I'm bringing it up, is because what you just were saying about being careful about going and signing it all away for $5 a ton, um, when we're told it needs to be $60 a ton to really work for farmers, um, you know, it, it causes me just to sit here and ponder. <laughs> like, okay. Absolutely. What yeah, am I and I want to, okay, so yes. Yeah, so I want to dive. I want to dive into that real fast. So first of all, so I want to clarify something real quick for our listeners because I know this is easy to confuse, and and, and I'll talk about NRCS programs, for instance, in a minute because I will tell you. Side note, spoiler alert: there's no carbon platform. I have done the math on this, Levi. I have done the math so many times it hurts my brain to think about it. There's no carbon platform right now that's going to pay you as well as an as a soil health initiative equip contract with the NRCS. No way. So, mm -hmm. okay. yeah, we'll talk about that later. But that being said, when you look at NRCS programs, farmers are so used to hearing them talked about this way, they're per the acre. NRCS programs pay you per acre. Carbon platforms don't on, on, on the whole. Some of them pay you per acre, but most pay per ton. Farmers see this dollar figure, $20 per ton, $40 per ton, whatever it is, and they think that's per acre, and it's not. It's per ton, y'all. And when you're harvesting a grain crop on your acres, Mathematically, again, this is something else I've dived into. On average, if you're harvesting a crop, this isn't, I'm not talking about converting to prairie or, or pasture or whatever, or putting in trees or forests, that's different. When you're harvesting a crop off your acreage, even if you're adopting conservation practices, depending on your soil type, you're going to sequester per acre per year, on average, between a third and three quarter ton of carbon per acre per year. So a third mm -hmm. ton to three quarters ton on average. 
So if you see a dollar, so let's just use a half a ton as an example to, to even it out. You see that dollar figure of $20 per ton, 10 bucks an acre. That's what you're getting mm-hmm. if you're sequestering a half a ton of carbon per acre per year. So I want to define that really fast. And then mm-hmm. to address now what you were talking about, you're right. None of them pay you. None of them pay enough. None of them pay enough to make the change to what it's going to cost you to adopt those conservation practices realistically on the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, well, farm- that brings me to the point that I'm – oh, go on. Well, just to answer, you know, I think the voluntary nature of this um, here in Southeast Iowa, anyway, has caused a lot of excitement by farmers to just push the envelope, try different practices on a few acres. um, And what we're seeing is they're getting more and more into it. And um, some of those practices were incentivized early on through um, EQIP, like you mentioned. And they're realizing they like using cover crops because they can do it without negatively impacting their yields. Um, they like buffer strips. And so farmers right now, I, I feel like, are doing these things knowing that they're not going to completely cancel out their costs by participating in these programs, but it, it helps because they want to be doing these practices. And that's, that's why they're willing to participate, even though the math doesn't necessarily work and um, and then the equip programs you say are the better way to start. You know, look at that first because that's going to um, give you the most bang for your buck. Yeah, absolutely. So, yes, to touch on what you're saying because that that dovetails with what I was going to say um, a second ago is that none of these carbon platforms can pay as well, say, as an EQIP Soil Health Initiative contract right now. Depending on where you are, those EQIP Soil Health Initiatives, depending on what practices you adopt, could get you 60, 70, 80 bucks an acre. It's nuts. And it's per acre. And so, but it depends on where you are. Might be lower depending on the county, might be lower depending on the soil types and what practices you adopt. But usually it's, it's comparable and certainly it's going to pay you more per acre than what a carbon company is going to pay you. And if you're going to adopt new practices, Again, I want to encourage people, this is just Ruth, the consultating, or excuse me, the consulting agronomist, consultating, the consulting agronomist stepping in and saying, you know, this is Ruth, the agronomist saying, hey, let's try to get you the most money you can for adopting these conservation practices and know that carbon company over there is not going to give you the most money to do this. It's actually going to be this NRCS contract, which maybe that NRCS equip contract is a five-year contract. Well, there you go carbon companies have five-year contracts. It's like you're signing up for a carbon company, except it's not a carbon company. It's an equip contract. And depending on the carbon company, here's where you got to get savvy. Maybe they let you stack with a state or a federal program. Now we're talking with gas, right? If it's a carbon company that lets you use federal dollars and they'll still pay you their private dollars, do both. Now, Now we're cooking with gas. And so that's why I'm not a complete skeptic about carbon companies. Just know which platform will allow you to do both at the same time. Now we're cooking. Because if you're going to use a conservation practice, again, you're selling that additionality. Just because you sign up with the NRCS, you start using a conservation practice, all right, you've jumped into the pool. So at that point now, you've got to figure out, I've jumped into this pool. If I only work with the NRCS, then I'm missing out on potential dollars I could get from a carbon company, so long as they allow me to work with a federal program. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like it. All right, I have a much better understanding now than I did at the beginning of a phone call. I don't know what I'm going to do, <laughs> but... Um, I'm encouraged, you know, I'm glad these companies are out there. I'm glad that they're spearheading a movement and I think change happens in baby steps. And so I feel like, um, it's important to just, um, accept that it's not going to all happen overnight. There is a place for agriculture, um, to benefit in our pocketbooks from, um, this carbon market that's coming. And um, you know, um, there's still there's still a variable that I'll mention though, because weather plays into this so much from year to year. If we don't get the corn out until the tenth of November, 
now what's the point of putting a cover crop out? Um, it's because it's not going to grow till spring. You know, that attitude is out there. And um, I guess I can speak a little bit to it because I've done that. I've put a cover crop out in mid-November and, and um, seen it still do what it's intended to do. It'll still grow, just not as tall in the spring. But weather can impact a farmer wanting to do these practices. Are they, are they going to be on the hook if they've said for company XYZ, I'm going to use these practices and they contract, they sign a contract and they just can't get out there? I am really happy you asked that because it's yet another thing. I know earlier you asked me like, hey, what are the things farmers should watch out for when they're signing these programs? And I only said two things, right? Because I wanted to keep my answer short. Okay, well, this is another thing. You need to know, you definitely need to know what kinds of reparations, what kinds of clawback clauses, what kinds of repayment requirements these carbon platforms have. Because, yep, some of them, for instance, Agoro, the Agoro Yara Alliance, that's a carbon platform, right? They're an input company and you can sign up with them and they have very aggressive payments. One of the, some of the best out there actually. What do they They also again? require you to pay them Agoro, the Agoro Yara Alliance. Okay. Um, they're an input company. Um, and so they, with them though, if you, and this may have changed, but as far as I know, and actually uh, this would be where I would encourage your, your, your listeners to reference that Iowa state extension handout that I was telling you about earlier. Again, I'll say the name. It's How to Grow and Sell Carbon Credits in U.S. Agriculture. Just Google that phrase. You'll find the, the PDF. But that document actually tells you which carbon platforms require you to pay them back if something happens and you reverse your practices or if mm -hmm. something happens and you, have to, and you have to do something that will cause you to lose carbon in your soil. Some companies, absolutely, and Agoro is one of them, who says, okay, you got to pay us back. We paid you this money and you had to reverse it. So you, you have to pay us back. And some companies don't have that um, clause. They say to the farmer, yep, force majeure. You couldn't help that your field flooded. You couldn't help that, you know, this thing happened and you couldn't get your, your cover crops in. We're not going to penalize you. Some companies will just tell you, well, we're not going to penalize you. We're not going to kick you out of the, of the program, but we're also not going to pay you for this year. So every carbon platform has a different way of handling that instance, and um, you need to know that detail, and the devil is in the details. So make sure you understand, okay, is, is the carbon platform going to ask me to pay them back? What's going to happen to me if I, if I have to rip up my field or if I don't get the cover crops in? Okay, so um, along with Ogro Carbon Alliance, other input companies named in that Iowa State publication are Bayer, Corteva, and Nutrien. And so these are examples of um, input companies where a farmer may just want to make sure they read closely because they, there may be um, things like that that are uh, challenging, that just make the contract challenging to meet. And um, thank, I'm glad we got into that. Um, all right, well, today we've taken an, object, an objective look at what's out there and ultimately how and how these carbon markets work and there's a lot of information here for us to ponder and looking at whether or not we want to get into them at this time um let's let's unless you have anything specific you want to add ruth let's leave it here and i look forward to coming back again and maybe have an update as things move along in this industry and we'll be able to um, continue the conversation and be a source that people can come to when they want to learn more and understand these things yeah, you know, there, yes, I agree with everything you just said, um, and I do want to have another conversation about it. Maybe we can go further into the weeds um, and maybe have more like a more philosophical conversation, maybe disagreement, depending on what we're talking about. There is one thing I want to add, though. Um, there is a subject I want to add to this conversation, and that is just another, another thing growers and landowners should think about is data requirements, data requirements. So every one of these carbon platforms, is going to ask you for a significant amount of information. They're going to want to know what you did at the field level from a management perspective on every acre. Not only in the, in the future, they're going to want to know what you did in the past. 
And sometimes they only need three years worth of management data. Sometimes they need five years worth of management data. So for any of the farmers that are certified organic farmers, they're going to have a better understanding of what that looks like and how much of an ask that is because they've gone through organic certification where you pretty much have to track every time you sneeze on a field and then you have to report it. Um, but I think for conventional growers who haven't had that level of oversight at the field level, at the acre level, it's going to be pretty uh, intimidating because most of these data or most of these companies need a significant amount of data from you about how you've managed each acre on each field before you can enroll it, both historically as well as in the future. And we're talking mm -hmm. receipts, invoices, records, records of application, you name it. Your agronomists at your cooperatives can only help you so much with that data. It's a big ask of them, and they're not being paid for that time. So farmers have to think about that and consider that. Um, it's just the data ask of these companies is big. So you as a grower and landowner just also need to be aware and be comfortable with sharing that level of information about your activities at the field level with a carbon company. Um, when you sign up with the NRCS and the FSA office, they pretty much already have all that information on you, so you don't see that that, that that information is being baked into those contracts when you sign up with the NRCS, but you do see it very very much so when you sign up with a private carbon company. So that's the only thing I would add to our discussion today is, is keeping in mind that data management ask. All right, and the things I would add is that Iowa State Extension and Outreach is a resource that is there and would be willing to dive into these things with farmers as they're wrestling with them. Also, communities of farmers here in Iowa might gather at Practical Farmers of Iowa, and, um, and I'm sure there's other um, organizations out there where communities can just gather and talk these things out and, you know, um, many minds coming together, I think, is a great way to sort through these things. And um, so seek those resources and tune into this podcast, podcast in the future and we'll have more topics and maybe have you back, Ruth, and we'll dive in more. Yeah, I would love that. Thank you so much, Levi. I appreciate you inviting me to be a part of this. All right. Thanks. And um, that, that sums it up for the podcast today. And I appreciate um, you joining in and um, like it, share it. Go to levisfarm.com to um, learn more or levilyle.com. And um, we'll, um, we'll tune in again. And until next time, thank you.